Now she'd been doing literally bag events. I've done one with her at the Albert Hall where she'd appear in a black bag and uh, at, a, at an event, you know. And, and the Beatles were in a black bag by being in hotels, creating myths, you know, that the people never actually saw you in the flesh. Or, and they didn't have that confusion. You had more power being a myth. And you had total communication being locked up in a hotel. But you didn't have it when you were on the street. Or even with the interviewers almost, you didn't have it. Because all they saw was Beatle John Lennon. Oh, he's got glasses. Oh, he looks older than I thought. Oh, isn't she small? Isn't she pretty? You know, and all that. That's the reaction we got. So as we were thinking this, it suddenly went... And we just both thought the same thing, you know. Bagism. That... Uh, We'd both been performing bagism separately before. She literally, and me not literally, I mean literally as a, a hotel is a black bag. Yes, philosophically. And so philo philosophically we were, we were performing. Same, yeah. So then we decided that uh, the next conference in London, when we arrived there, we'll be in a white bag. We've done one white bag event at the Albert Hall, but we'd be in a white bag and then explain bagism, you know, and the tick also explains to people saying, why are you doing it in a hotel? You should get out more. Because if, uh, if you're talking to me, even though you know I'm John Lennon and I'm in a bag, you can't be discussing uh, what I wear. Only, the only surprise for you, or the hang will only be that it is a bag talking. Or, oh, John Lennon is in a bag and Yoko Ono's in a bag. But after that, all you can have is what we say, or what, whatever, feel, whatever reaction you get from the, from the bag. And you can't have preconceived ideas, or, or, you know, I mean, if it was somebody else that did it, that did it somebody else communicating but you wouldn't know whether it was black white woman or man or anything you wouldn't be sure so you could only you'd have total communication that, that which is what we had lying in bed in the dark we couldn't see each other and we weren't looking at each other but the idea came just bang and we both thought of it at the same time you know total communication bag and then of course we came up with the word bagism to uh, put a tag on it you know to put it in a bag the Beatles were very much of their time I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Yeah. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. Five, four, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Welcome back once again to January 8th, 1969. After a lot of dithering and delay, the Beatles are about to start working on George's I Me Mine. We'll be joining them in a few minutes, but first, well, you know the drill. A podcast recommendation. 
The rest is history. The deepest of dives into historical events. Each episode is a self-contained analysis of one specific subject. I was particularly impressed by their analysis of the historical Jesus as compared to the biblical legend. You will definitely learn something new here. A very big shout out goes to the generous Wadstars who left a donation in the tip jar at buymeacoffee.com. So, to Beetle Bruce, Matthew, Everybody's Dummy, Maureen J and the Mark Gledhill, a huge thank you. Your support makes all this possible. If you'd like to become a Wadstar too, please go to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wadpod, W-O-D-P-O-D and leave a tip. It's not a subscription, just a one-off payment and I won't send you a Christmas card letting you know how I'm getting on. Promise. I'd like to make one small request to all listeners. Please help me spread the word about the podcast. I realise this is a pretty niche subject, but I'm sure it can reach a larger audience. We did reach the amazing milestone of 100,000 downloads recently, but I really would love more people to hear and understand what's being discovered in these tapes. So, where you can, please tell your friends. Share the various social media links and spread the word about our community. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do. And if you can find it, because I know Apple Podcasts have made it more difficult, leave a review. These little actions do so much to raise the profile of the podcast and you'll make a middle-aged man very happy. Let's briefly recap episode 41 before we eavesdrop on the Beatles once more. George can be heard demoing I Me Mine for John. At first, John's verdict on the song is positive, though he queries its short length and the high-pitched vocal. George runs through I Me Mine again, half-jokingly, and John can be heard semi-mockingly commenting, Run along, son. We're a rock and roll band, you know. The band appears to be on a break while some work is being done to the PA system. John unwraps a painting he's received and hangs it by where he and Yoko are sitting. John returns to the topic of I Me Mine. He asks George what he wants him to play and sarcastically suggests accordion, having suggested barrel organ already. George doesn't react to being teased and agrees with John. John asks Mal if they have Paul's accordion on the set. Mal confirms that this isn't a joke and Paul does own an accordion, but Mal doesn't have it. John requests that Mal get together all the band's instruments in one place. He then inquires about an electric piano. Mal explains that they have their pianet, but John is not impressed with this, saying it's noisy and they should get a better one, like other bands are using on stage. He says he saw jazz singer Blossom Deary using one on television, though he mangles her name as is his want. There then follows a discussion with a crew member about the painting they've received. Paul nominates John to interpret the abstract image, which John does in his inimitable fashion. John then takes the role of auctioneer. Paul bids threepence for it. Another voice says fourpence halfpenny. Paul takes over the auction and the crew member offers 50 shillings for it. An improvement on John's abilities as an auctioneer. But John offers the painting to the crew member for free. One can't help wondering what became of this painting of unknown origin. Did this crew member take it home? 
I'm sure it would be worth a good deal more than 50 shillings now. Making use of the downtime, Paul attempts to get an honest discussion with John about his lack of contribution to the project. John admits he has no new material, and Paul is frank with him, saying, We're heading for a crisis. They are both distracted by the intrusive boom mic, and a serious conversation descends into farce, made worse by Ringo's testing the echo effect, causing squealing feedback. Michael wonders if the feedback is the sound that could kill. Paul says no, and then changes his mind when another piercing squeal rings out. John wants to try the echo sound, and goes on to the mic to sing a few seconds of Bebopalula and then converse with Ringo, who replies on another mic. The echo becomes more subtle. Glyn seems to be involved now. John and Ringo are the only voices being captured now. John mentions an article and Ringo enunciates slowly, pomp and circumstance. They appear to be answering someone's question about the origins of I Mean Mine. John then makes a reference to their meeting with Elvis Presley, stating that he's playing guitar at home with the telly on like Elvis. He is impatient to start work, but they're not yet ready. He parodies I Me Mine in song, then plays a brief bit of the old standard, The Umbrella Man. John is still waiting for his accordion part, as he puts it, but George is busy looking for another acoustic guitar. Paul breaks the monotony, Paul, John and Ringo run through Oh Darling, then, as George is tuning his new acoustic guitar, Paul plays Let It Be, accompanied by Ringo, John, and then George eventually on acoustic. As they finish the run-through, George and Paul discuss Paul's intention to give the song to Aretha Franklin. Paul would like the Beatles to demo it first by the sound of things. Paul and John discuss the lyrics and the message of the song. Paul is thinking of it as a kind of we shall overcome. George gives up on the acoustic guitar and resumes tuning his Gibson. John plays a little bit of waltz time guitar and then his own waltz song, Dig a Pony. Out of the blue, John tells Paul that they could do Let It Be if Paul reverts to his original Brother Malcolm lyrics instead of Mother Mary. So I Me Mine is not alone in getting the glib John treatment today. John plays something that's difficult to hear, but he follows it with the riff from Sanford Clarke's The Fool. John interrupts George's tuning to ask if he's going to teach them the song now, and that's where we'll rejoin them. By the way, I Me Mine rehearsals are extensive, much like when the Beatles worked on Don't Let Me Down, so this episode will be a two-parter, as there is so much to get through. George begins teaching John and Paul the chords to I Me Mine. Thank you. 
Paul picks up his bass and returns to his seat. George teaching John the more tricky chords without naming them. Paul asks, do you want to run through it a couple of times? George is now teaching Paul the chords to follow. His method seems to be to teach each part separately in contrast to Paul's ability to teach a song to the group as a whole. Ask George to repeat the chords slowly. again. Ringo playing a rudimentary waltz beat. Paul is exaggerating it too. Uh, 
George asks if that's the way he wants to play it, but Ringo asks him to play the song and he can show George what he has in mind for the drum part. Paul jokes, I don't know how to waltz, apparently to John and Yoko. We get a first run through with just George, Paul and Ringo. Even at this early stage, John has started dancing to the song with Yoko, rather than playing. It could be that he was bored waiting to be shown what to play and does intend to return to his guitar, but George thinks it's a good idea for the show. George is encouraging about John and Yoko's waltz. He's also inferring that the song doesn't need another guitar. You know, or something. I mean, if you want to gag it up a bit. You know, I'd like it. If you want to bag it up a bit is a reference to John and Yoko's appearance last year in a white bag, suggesting they could do something like that. Interestingly, Paul's bass line for this song is the most melodic so far at least in these sessions. George's chord sequences tend to inspire this in Paul. <laughs> yeah, it'd be good. Now, John and Yoko would like to waltz in their white bag. <laughs> and then there's another white bag waltzing around. <laughs> they were doing things inside it. They were waltzing this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, just something, uh, whatever, you, you know, you do your bits. Do it, we should do it like a, like an escapologist thing. You know, where you can see there's no, they're not tied at all. There's nothing up their sleeves. And we put the bag over them. An allusion here from Paul to press speculation that something sexual was going on during their appearance at the Royal Albert Hall. Paul here is seeing the funny side of trying to waltz while being inside a white bag. This reminds me of a Monty Python sketch where Terry Jones attempts to play Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number no. 1 while escaping from a sack. Great minds and all that. December 18th, 1968, London's Royal Albert Hall. Jack Henry Moore and Jim Haynes of the Arts Lab, 182 Drury Lane, London, an alternative arts centre founded in 1967, decided to stage an event for the underground art movement's Christmas party. It was billed as the Alchemical Wedding, although the hall had been surreptitiously booked under the auspices of a performance by Leonard Cohen in order to not draw attention to his underground origins. John and Yoko, who were fervent patrons of the Arts Lab, were scheduled to give a performance. It is this unique piece of performance art that Paul is referring to. Following a performance by the Third Ear Band, John and Yoko walked to the centre of the stage, retrieved a large white linen sack and climbed in shoulder to shoulder, knee to knee and disappeared inside. Poet flautist Neil Oram, who was due to appear after John and Yoko, recalled, I was in the wings when they walked out. I was due to read and play my flute and John and Yoko turned up with their big bag. I had no idea what they were up to, and then they got their bag out and got inside it. People were booing, and they were calling out for me to read and play my flute, 
So while they were in their bag, I played my flute and read my poems. To embellish the visuals, members of the Third Ear Band had remained on stage and rode white bicycles around John and Yoko's bag while Oren played and even a baby crawled by. During the performance, a protester ran to the stage holding a banner about the British government's involvement in the Nigerian Civil War, shouting, Do you care, John Lennon? Do you care? Quite how this protester expected John to read their banner is not known. The whole performance, however, had already been upstaged by Elizabeth Marsh. The young Texan blonde beauty stripped off her dress during a frenzied drum and chant number and sat naked in the third row as officials pleaded that she get dressed. When the police arrived, audience members formed a human shield around the young woman and began to strip themselves. Naturally, it was this impromptu performance that generated the most headlines. John and Yoko's performance lasted around 25 minutes, though recollections vary. In that time, they moved only twice. The bag they had explained was to ensure total communication with the audience. News reports claimed that after 25 minutes they emerged and the audience applauded wildly, though Oram's recollection is that they got out to People booing them and everything, and John Lennon was really pissed off. I don't know why they turned up with such a boring stunt at such a fantastic event. John remarked at the time, We didn't know what people were doing outside the bag. We just heard all this thumping and never knew what was going on. So much for total communication. John and Yoko didn't forget about this idea. In fact, they developed it into the concept of bagism, which they officially launched on the 31st of March 1969. Yoko explained the origins of the concept, stating that it was inspired by the theme of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's The Little Prince, in which he writes, One sees only with the heart. The essential is invisible to the eyes. Bagism is intended to be a satire on prejudice and stereotyping. Living in a bag means you can't be judged by your appearance. But as we have seen, this only works one way, as the person inside the bag has little perception of what is happening outside. That said, it is one of John and Yoko's more memorable pieces. It's interesting to note that despite the art exhibitions, the avant-garde music, the naked album cover et al, Paul's main takeaway from the John Yoko brand is that they do things together in a white bag. Paul and George discuss how many beats to play before the flamenco section. Very quick, you know, so it's no, ha no hang up. Castanets on that bit, you know. Yeah, that'd be. George wonders if they have any castanets. Ringo calls out to Mel or Kevin to see if they have any. Thank you. 
there sounding more like Edith Piaf than anything else, perhaps revealing more about the song's origins than George is even aware of. Full credit must go to theymaybeparted.com for this bit. As George discussed this morning, I Me Mine got its inspiration from George hearing a piece of waltz music on a TV show called Europa, the titled and the unentitled. The music used in the show was written by Johann Strauss and was called the Kaiser Waltzer. Naturally, citing this as an inspiration allows us to know with some accuracy when I Me Mine was composed, to be specific between 9.55 and 10.25pm on January the 7th, 1969. Still estranged from Patty at this point, George was in a contemplative mood, reflecting on his ego, which he felt was false and impermanent. Despite being a regular user of LSD, he had not suffered the promised ego death espoused by Dr. Timothy Leary. Instead, he said, So suddenly I looked around and everything I could see was relative to my ego. You know, that's my piece of paper, that's my flannel, or give it to me, or I am. Anyway, that's what came out of it. I mean mine. The truth within us has to be realized when you realize that everything else that you see and do, touch and smell isn't real, then you may know what reality is and can answer the question, who am I? We'll discuss the musical structure of the song in part two. What is important to note is how John's lack of involvement, or indeed interest in this song, is probably the reason that it exists in the Beatles canon at all. As we have heard, John initially kills time by waltzing with Yoko while waiting for George to show him his part. George tended to work individually with his bandmates. George at this point is encouraging or at least indulgent of John's clowning. But later we can hear that John has been given a lead guitar break in the song, playing the melody in a style not dissimilar to what he would do later in I Want You She So Heavy. However, they are still talking about John's waltzing at this point, so it's difficult to understand how they thought he could do both. At all events, I Me Mine evolved during this rehearsal in such a way that John's solo wasn't required, 
having spent much of the afternoon on the song, circumstances would mean that the Beatles didn't return to it at all in January 1969. In fact, the song was only recorded by the lineup of Paul, George and Ringo a full year later in January 1970. However, you can tell by Michael's enthusiasm for John and Yoko's waltz that he finally felt he had a good visual idea to go with the song. Despite George not performing the song again for the project, the footage Michael and Tony Richmond had captured of John and Yoko's dance ensured that the song had a place in the final Let It Be film. And so, George, who had not thought to resurrect the song when the band moved to Apple Studios or when they began to work on Abbey Road later in the year or when they needed a B-side for the Ballad of John and Yoko, was obliged to get a Beatles recording of I Me Mine for the Let It Be album to accompany the film and in doing so made history by being the final Beatles recording, at least until their 90s reunion. Someone else taking an interest in the anvil. Tape cuts. John joins in on the last note sarcastically and gets a rather dry response from George. George using a hip phrase of the day which John will turn into a song later in these sessions. Can you dig it, man? Can you dig it? 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 It's, it, when you say something like that, fast, I'm a man, 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 I'm a man. Tape cuts before George makes his point here. It's pure speculation again on my part, but he could be comparing the phrase I'm a man being repeated fast to a mantra. Okay, one, two, three, one, uh, one, two. You can still hear John off mic. He sounds like he's trying out a harmony. Paul's contributions now sound like the Swingle Singers, if you want to Google that. Tape cuts again. It's 3.45pm. Roll 86B, B camera. The time is now quarter to four. Slate 154 continues. George is asking Kevin for his brand of cigarettes, Kent. Kevin, got any Kent? Is that a great idea? Got any Kent? Kevin. Yoko joking with Michael, and Michael saying, Isn't that a great idea? Yoko replies, Maybe TV number 20 or something. At least I think that's it. Almost. Is that, are you sure that's grammatic? Oh, Blowing more freely. 
George still questioning his grammar. Michael reassures him. John asks if they've got it, i.e. learned their parts yet. George says they'll do one more. They appear to be discussing a part for John to contribute. They've not yet worked out what that could be yet. Paul's bass drowns out a lot of this conversation. George is counting it more or less as six, eight, one, two, three, four. While Paul thinks it should be counted as a waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three. Because then you sort of feel it. It's like you might miss it. One, two, three, one, two, three, three. Tape cuts. Tape one five five. Take one. And again, some time may have passed. Paul and George are rehearsing the ending. It sounds like Johnny's yawning in the background. But it's a great insight into the level of detail the Beatles will go into. Paul offers George a choice of two different notes for the end of the song. Tape cuts. They're now working on the transition from the verse to the flamenco part. Paul suggests Ringo just stops. But George likes Ringo's idea of some cymbal work at the break. Job to do in the back room, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he will have his fingers full. Yeah.
George now suggesting someone, presumably Glyn, could play castanets, though Paul suggests that he may be busy doing other things in the control room. Domino. Domino. Paul referencing Domino acting up for the camera. Written in 1950 by Louis Ferrari and Jacques Platt, Domino was a big European hit introduced by French singer André Claveau, but covered by many others. With English lyrics by Don Ray, Domino was a hit for Tony Martin and Bing Crosby, in an era where rival versions of a song would be released at the same time. It was also recorded by Doris Day, Jane Morgan, Teddy Johnson and Andy Williams. As such, the song would have been well known to the young Beatles in a pre-television era huddled around an open fire listening to the wireless. In the background, George is talking with Ringo. It's very difficult to decipher, but he does appear to think I'm in mine is a better contender for the show, presumably than all things must pass. He also sounds like he's talking about the staging. There's a reference to thousands of people. Tape cuts. Contrary to popular belief, John is now playing guitar on I Me Mine, contributing a solo which follows the verse melody and then plays some fast tremolo notes. The sound is very unusual an overdriven sound with the tone turned right down. Tape cuts.
and again. Ringo makes a comment about they used to do it all the time on stage. I'm not sure what he's referring to, perhaps something like Babies in Black. George as ever, lacking confidence, wants to move on to something else. Paul asks if John will be dancing. John doesn't want to keep on dancing. Paul jokes with him in a Scottish accent for some reason. So, although John is playing guitar, there still seems to be a plan for he and Yoko to dance. Countless versions of John Lennon exist in the public imagination. The self-appointed working-class hero, the well-read intellectual, the fearless cheeky mop-top, the shy tongue-tied author, the remorseful father, the loyal friend, the careless husband, leader, genius, visionary, narcissist. In short, John Lennon was a complex and unique individual capable of acts of great kindness and vindictive cruelty. George Harrison got the measure of him early on in their relationship. I remember being very impressed with John's big thick sideboards and trendy teddy boy clothes. He was a terribly sarcastic bugger right from day one but I never dared back down from him. George understood you needed a thick skin to be around Lennon. A more sensitive artist might have taken John's attitude more personally. A more sensitive artist like, say, Ray Davis of the Kinks. The Kinks toured with the Beatles in 1964. When they arrived for their first date in Bournemouth, they were ushered into the Beatles' dressing room. Ray Davis describes the scene as Ringo tapping his sticks on his thighs, McCartney humming his latest earworm and John Lennon imposing and scowling. Davis shook hands with Lennon, who took the opportunity to assert dominance and put down the younger man. John Lennon made the remark that we were only there to warm up for them. Fired up by this slight, the Kinks hit the stage with something to prove and tore into an early version of Davis' song, You Really Got Me. The teenage crowd went wild. Davis described the feeling as like being bullied at school and having something bigger than the bully. Seeking to dominate others was often John's MO when dealing with new people. But even his closest friend Paul could not escape the sarcastic Lennon wit. Paul always wanted the group to have a diverse repertoire, even if this included the odd show tune or romantic ballad. John would perform these songs under duress, or so it would seem. His mocking interjections became part of the Beatles stage act. During A Taste of Honey, John would loudly sing his backing vocal as a waste of money. During the upbeat cover of Shimmy Shimmy, John would sing Shitty Shitty. When Paul sang Till There Was You, John would repeat every line back at him. And with his cheeky grin, everyone in the crowd loved him for it. John's reaction to George's demonstration of Army Mine is again sarcastic and even cruel but not out of character. Paul can be heard on the tape indistinctly, 
but clearly joining in with the put-downs and even George briefly hams up his performance for the fun of it. However, George's growing disenchantment with being a Beatle can't have been helped by John's insensitivity. This is, after all, not the first time John had shown little interest in one of George's compositions. One only has to look through George's back catalogue to realise that often John isn't playing on the backing track at all. From 1965's Think For Yourself, John's guitar is notable by its absence on most Harrison compositions. Taxman, I Want To Tell You, It's Only A Northern Song, Blue Jay Way, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Piggies, Long 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 and Savoy Truffle. It's possible John's insecurity about his abilities as a musician may have been at the root of his attitude. George's songs were often more complex with unfamiliar chord shapes that may have intimidated Lennon. John commented when George played Let It Down for him at the start of these sessions that it would take him three weeks to learn the chords. But he was supportive and persevered with learning the keyboard part for All Things Must Pass. Though it must be said John's keyboard playing is uninspiring and he lacks the technique to make anything more than a pad of chords. With I Me Mine it's possible that George was only too pleased to let John sit this one out, hence encouraging him to dance rather than play. The waltz idea clearly wasn't intended by John to be anything more than another bit of sarcastic mockery while killing time. When both George and Michael praised him for it, it became his role in the song. We should bear in mind, however, that this could all be a power move. John has a heavy waltz in the key of A of his own that he's working on called Dig a Pony. Kevin? Kevin? Kevin doesn't seem to be there right now. Kevin? Kevin. 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 Kevin O'Reilly. George asks, what else is there? Paul moves to the piano and offers to teach them the long and winding road. I'd like to learn a few chords. It's not over yet, the Beatles still have a whole lot of work to do on I Me Mine, but we'll have to leave that till next time. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs>